questions that we've had together, this is beginning uh, to be the most emotional one. So far it's been more or less an introduction and routine, but I think we're going to get to some questions today about which everyone has an opinion. And I want to make sure that everyone gets a chance to express it. Two summers ago, Margaret and I had the unusual opportunity to lead a group of people to East Africa to a safari camp on Lake Rudolph where we watched an eclipse of the sun. For many of the people who were there, there were 50 people from this country, from many parts of the country, all ages. For many of the people there, the eclipse was a proof of the existence of God. And I remember one evening after the eclipse was over, two of the people who were with us were Dave Garraway and his young son. Dave is quite an amateur astronomer. And he used to live on Long Island, in fact, and had a large telescope here, which he donated to a local school, and it was then shortly after that totally vandalized, which is also proof of the existence of evil. And we were sitting there reminiscing about the happenings of the previous week out there in the desert. And as you remember, Dave Garraway is a master storyteller. And we were gathered about six of us around the table and Dave started telling the story and when that happens the hush falls and he says you know he did some studying and reading and he found that the penguins near the South Pole have a very unusual way of life when an egg is laid in the penguin colony and it's very cold there the penguins gather around and take turns sitting on the egg so that not only one of the birds is subjected to this cold weather and this long chore. And not only do they instinctively take turns sitting on the egg, but they slowly rotate the circle of birds around the egg, which is protecting it from the wind, so that not one bird gets all the cold wind in its back all the time. Then after a long pause, he said, you know, and then there are some people who say there is no God. Now to him, the story of the penguins was a proof of the existence of God. I was reminded of that story in looking at this cover of Scientific American for August. There's a bird on the front here, and the bird is inside especially made cage made out of blotting paper and all he can see is the stars above him and there is a glass lid on here so he can't get out on the bottom of the cage is a little ink pad so that every time the bird stands in the bottom he gets ink on his feet when he tries to get out of the cage he makes ink marks on the side this was done at Cornell University at the bird laboratory there and it was discovered that every fall the birds that are kept in these cages try to get out of the cage on one side of it only and that side happens to point south 
as told by the stars above the bird. And in spring, the birds try to get out on the side that faces north, as revealed by the stars above here. So the people working in the laboratory there started putting these birds into a planetarium where they could change the stars. And they found that they do indeed follow the stars because they could make the birds fly in any direction they wanted just by changing the stars in the ceiling. My reaction was, and then there are some people who say, there is no God. And by a real coincidence again, three weeks ago when we took our daughter to Cornell, I wanted to see this place. And I met a girl there who was a graduate student, and we got acquainted. And I told her that I was interviewing Dr. Sagan and other scientists about what they believe about God. And she got very excited because she said she's a devout Christian. And I sent her a copy of the book we're using in this course, and I got a letter back from her last week. And it says, Praise Jesus. Thank you so very, very much for sending the book, The God of Science. It looks fascinating to me. I will read it as soon as I finish the book, Jesus Christ, the Creator. And I will certainly tell you what I think of it. I am excited to see that one of the men you interviewed in your book is Dr. Jan von Irsel of Holland, who is a noted ethologist. I thought that was misspelled. I looked it up. An ethologist is a scientist who studies animal behavior. I hope to visit him at Leiden next spring when I return to Holland for more field work on my ruffs. A ruff is a kind of a bird. So the whole thing came kind of full circle. Fascinating story if you want to get to read the whole thing. How they tried to find out just what do the birds look at when they look at the stars. How long does it take him to learn that? If a bird is newborn, how long does he have to sit under the stars to figure out in which direction to fly? And it's rather humiliating to find out that it only takes about two nights. And I have classes, they go a whole semester. And they don't know which way to fly. Now, these are... As I say, to the people we've been talking about, proofs of the existence of God. But remember last week we talked about two kinds of thinking, deduction and induction, to go from authority outward or from specific events inward to truth. And from some of the discussions we had after the lesson last week, I think it is well if I would tell you that, of course, we oversimplified the matter, which is always what you have to do to make a point in teaching. You have to boil it down, and then when the point gets across, you say, well, of course, it's not exactly like that. So it is not all that simple that you either work by deduction or induction when you think. And the reason it isn't that simple is because we're not two kinds of people. One time we're deductive people, another time we're inductive. We're always total human beings, and we use all of these things all the time. So it would be better to say that in some cases we think more deductively, and in other situations we use induction more. We make the same mistake in teaching in school. We divide the students up into subjects. So we put him into one room and say, now you're in biology, as though he's now supposed to forget everything else that had happened to him that morning or whatever, his background, his problems, his arguments, and just be a kind of biologist. 
Well, they're always total human beings. And if we would remember that each time we talk to people, instead of thinking of them only in the area in which we're interested, maybe we'd get along better together. Now, in order to summarize further what we said last week about deduction and induction, there's a little story that I think is appropriate. And whether it actually happened is not so important, as is the case of most stories, as is the idea that we're trying to put across. But the story is told that at the time of Luther, when the inductive method of science first blossomed, there was a conference of noted theologians. And in those days, theology discussed all subjects. There was nothing outside the area of what theologians could decide on, because by deduction, you see, they were the authorities and could settle many issues. And it happened that one day the conference was discussing horses. And the specific topic was, how many teeth does a horse have? And there were books piled high on the tables, and the noted authorities of the past and the ancient fathers were consulted to see just how many teeth does it say these books the horse has. And during the discussion, a page boy came into the room delivering messages or water or food or whatever, and he overheard this discussion. And he told one of the participants, if you want to know how many teeth a horse has, why don't you go and look at a horse and count them? And strangely, this idea was dismissed as totally unworthy of the intellectual nature of the discussion. Because, you see, if you go and count the teeth in a horse, you're admitting that you can't figure it out by yourself. And besides, what the fathers and the authorities said about how many teeth a horse has was more important than how many the horse actually had. You might have lost one, you know. That's deduction and induction. They were figuring it out deductively. The boy had the idea, which blossomed into modern science, called induction. There's a modern counterpart to that story, too, which is in your book on page 6. And I think it's time to start referring to it the third time around. <laughs> if I were to choose a favorite interview of these 38, and I should tell you there were really 39, but I erased one. <laughs> and I never had the courage to tell this man the reason he's not in this book is that I erased the interview. It was the head of the Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore who made a special trip out to the hospital on a Saturday afternoon to talk about this book, and I forgot to flip the tape over for the next interview and erase every word. Now, how do you make up for that? <laughs> you just don't mention it, I guess, or else go back and do it over. But I think the the most fascinating and probably the longest discussion of the whole series was that uh, of Dr. Elie, A-L-Y-E-A, starts on page five and continues on page six. He's very talkative. He's a noted professor of chemistry at Princeton University and is known all over the world for his innovations in teaching. 
he has perfected a way of teaching college chemistry where the whole thing is in the back of a Jeep. And he's been in 80 countries and has taken this Jeep and backed it up to a building or a tent or whatever and teaches chemistry with it, no matter what language it's in. It's all visual. It's fascinating. And Dr. Elier is a devout Christian. And he went on and on uh, about how science reinforces his faith. He'll talk to anybody who will listen about this. And the first reference I have to him in here in, on page five is one that I have used over and over in teaching. Because again, it shows the difference between deduction and induction. On page six, he tells about the fact and he mentions Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared here. And he tells that he always starts his classes at Princeton on the first day with the statement that the universe is made up of matter, energy, and blurbs. But blurbs haven't been discovered yet. <laughs> and you see, by saying this, he immediately protects himself against the future when blurbs are discovered. <laughs> then the students won't be able to say, well, remember old Elier saying that the universe is energy and matter, and he was so dumb he didn't know about blurbs? <laughs> this way, he's never wrong. And it's the way all inductive teaching ought to be presented, that this is what we know now, but someday we'll know something different. There are other remarkable statements in here by Elier. On page 34, for example, and this leads us into today's discussion of proving the existence of God. Elier was here at Princeton at Hofstra um, one time, which was a memorable thing to see also. He has a demonstration that he puts on for conventions, religious conventions, and if you're ever in need of a speaker who will keep a group spellbound, he's the one. He had a thousand teenagers at the Hofstra Auditorium, and he kept them practically on their feet the entire time doing chemical demonstrations and relating it to his religious faith. I got him later as the banquet speaker in Philadelphia for 800 Lutheran teachers. And this is a few years ago, and they're still talking about it, right? He just runs from one to the other. He's about 70 years old and keeps the crowd going with his chemical parables, as he calls them. Here, Elie says, science is adequate in the physical world. And then a little later, the other side of the picture is that there are other things that I instinctively realize science cannot measure. Then he compares science and religion and says that both deal in dogmas. You have to believe in science and you have to believe in religion. There's no difference there. Both of them require faith. So they're not so different, is what I want to establish here. The two words that are used, and I want to summarize these on the board here, and you've heard them over and over, I'm sure, are reason and faith. Remember, they're not mutually exclusive again. I don't want to oversimplify the point where we say there is no reason used in religion and there's no faith used in science. I just said you need faith to do science also. Well, let's begin with the reason part and apply it 
to the question of God. If you can reason something out, then you do not need faith. The principle of gravity is either true or it isn't true. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. And whether it is eventually proved or disproved, it does not depend whether you accepted it. It's going to turn out one way or the other eventually. So anything that can be reasoned and proved in the inductive way does not require faith. People eventually always ask, do you believe this theory or that theory? You don't believe theories. You work with theories. Theories are tools. You don't believe in a hammer. You use the hammer. And if another tool is better, you use another tool. Theories are tools. I don't see any reason for getting stirred up, for example, about the theory of evolution or the theory of anything else, or even whether it's Christian or not. I think it is perfectly okay for a Christian to use an unchristian theory in his thinking if it helps him to do the work he's doing. It is not related to what he believes. We believe in things like motherhood and brotherhood and love. You don't reason that out. You just know it. Another thing about reasoning something out. Anything that you reason out, remember from last week, is never really true. It's never sure. Because tomorrow someone else will find a flaw in your reasoning. And it is for these two reasons that it is a good thing, and to me a very comforting thing, that you cannot prove or reason out the existence of God. If you can reason out that God exists, eventually somebody will unreason it, just like every other inductive truth. And if you could reason it out that God exists, then why in the world would we need a Bible? Then we could just sit down and reason it out. But the Bible had to be given because there were some things we cannot reason. Or let's make it even stronger. Because there are some things that don't make sense. And God is one of those. <coughs> Because God is beyond sense. He's not nonsense. He's beyond sense. Now a reasoning person has to make a choice. Either there is a God who is eternal, or there is no God and the universe is eternal. Neither one of those makes sense. But you're stuck with one choice or the other. 
And I think that's as far as you can go with a person who does not believe in God using your reason. You can get him to admit that a choice is necessary, neither one of which makes sense. Now, if you establish that, you have already answered this one sticky question where people say, well, believing in God is so unscientific, whereas being an atheist is much more rational. It is not. The person who is an atheist believes in an eternal universe, and that doesn't make sense either. You have to take a jump in one direction or the other. And that's called faith. So you either have faith that there is a God, or you have faith <coughs> that matter or energy or whatever the universe is made of always was. And it has been my experience in talking to the people in this book and many more since that most scientists believe that there is a God. I don't know what the percentage is relative to other professions. Some of them told me, why don't you do this survey with lawyers and engineers, all kinds of other people? Well, I think it'd be very nice. I think that should be done. But I think in each case it should be done by a person who is somewhat conversant in that field. I would not feel very comfortable conversing with an attorney, for example, about this, because I couldn't follow his reasoning as well. Now that doesn't say that these scientists belong to church necessarily. They're not that far. That's coming in two more Sundays. What about the church? But they believe in a God. They find the choice that God is eternal somehow more comfortable personally than that the universe is eternal. Now before we go on to the other part and faith, maybe someone would like to react to what I've just said or throw in some further ideas on it. Yes, according to reasoning, nothing in this world is absolute. Yeah, if we mean by reason the inductive method I've been talking about, yes, because you never get to an absolute conclusion. You always examine more data. And since you can never examine all the data, therefore you're never absolutely sure. It may just be that if you reason out that God exists, it's all, maybe it's because you've only examined the data that revealed the existence of God. Maybe there's some other data that either you don't want to look at, or uh, that are not open to you, or that are beyond the human senses that would disprove his existence. So it seems to me that that approach to God is a dead end. And the very fact that many very capable reasoning people do not believe in the existence of God also shows me that reason does not lead to God. I'm reminded of two men who were equally brilliant in the same field of science and had the same background, and their whole lives they tried to convert each other. 
Michelson and Morley. Now, if you're familiar in the history of science, you may know that Michelson was world famous for measuring the speed of light. And Morley was his co-worker at the Case Institute in Cleveland. Michelson was the atheist and Morley was the Christian. Equally brilliant, did the same work in the same laboratory for many years and never succeeded in influencing each other one way or the other. A real proof, I think, that whether you believe in God doesn't make you a better or a worse scientist. And a proof of the fact that just reasoning things does not get you closer to God or even his existence. You either make the jump or you don't make the jump. Now, scientists are not foreign to making these leaps, even in science. It was Einstein who said that a good scientist is one who is able to make the leap of faith. And he was not talking about God at all. He was talking about going from known data to unknown data and unknown theories and saying, ah, now, what does this seem to lead to? And he makes this jump and says, I have a new idea. That's a leap of faith. That's that moment of inspiration, as many scientists call it, where you finally sit down after doing all your library work and everything else and coming up with a new idea. That's not unlike religious faith at all. Two men may be trained equally. One is able to make this leap and come up with an idea, and the other one never will. You can't teach people to do this. You can expose them to people who do it, but you can never teach a person to have a new idea. Because once you tell him a new idea, then he's not having one of his own. Well, let's talk about the other side. And I might mention, by the way, some of the pages, or at least the people in the book who are very emphatic about whether scientists believe in God or not. And some of those who are rather uh, famous people. Sagan told me a few weeks ago, this isn't in here yet, I would be unhappy about a future world in which the traditional ethical precepts of religion were abandoned. Now, he doesn't mention God in there. And I asked him, Dr. Sagan, do you believe there is a God? And you get the same thing from almost all these scientists when you ask that question. What do you mean by a God? See, now that's kind of an end run, because what I meant him to tell me was, what do you mean by a God? See? So he gives you all this stuff about God could be this and God could be that. He said, I don't want to hear what God could be. Do you have a religion? And this is as far as he went, which to me made Sagan a religious person in the sense that he doesn't want religion out. Another one said, most scientists are religious men. Well, that doesn't tell us whether he is. Of course, the man who was speaking was a Jesuit priest, so I assumed he believed in God. And L.E.A. says in one of the passages, Science strengthens my religion. The more contact I have with the physical world, the more I believe in the reality of God. And probably the most famous person in the book is Dr. Max Born, as I mentioned in our first session, that he and Einstein wrote many letters to each other, and I asked him
him whether science makes a person irreligious. And he looked surprised. And he said it seems to him that a person who says that science turns you away from God, such a person must be a rather silly person. Now that's a pretty strong term, I guess, for Max Born. I, we would use something a little stronger. And Born was not, of course, actively involved in church work, but as I read to you before, his wife was very active in the Quaker religion, and he was very proud of this, that uh, they were doing humanitarian work. Now, if we want the definition of this second part of today's discussion, we obviously can't go to a science textbook, because supposedly science doesn't deal with things that are taken on faith. So we have to go to the Bible. And I alluded to this last week also. The Bible does not argue about the existence of God. It assumes it. The first verse says, in the beginning, God. <coughs> now, if you're not willing to see, that's the, the lead right there. In the beginning, God. This is a book for people who believe that God was always there. And if you don't believe that, then you better shut it and think it over. And after you've made that jump, continue reading. Now, of course, you can keep reading, even if you don't believe in God, just to see what God supposedly says in there. And then maybe as you go along, it's going to start working on you. Because we know that the Bible itself says that the word of God never comes back empty. Even for an unbeliever, you read it, and God is going to work through it. But the Bible itself does not present rational arguments for the existence of God. It says, this is God's book. But it does have a lot to say about what faith is. And a good definition, I think, of faith, very clear, is in Hebrews 11, verse 1. The traditional King James wording is, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's... Uh, not quite as clear as it is in some others. In the Living Bible, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. Let's boil it down even more. And I use the word now in the sense that we did with the inductive method. You don't have to prove something to a person when he believes it. And things that you can prove, you don't have to believe. They are so. So faith is required in things that are not rationally provable. If you love someone, you love him no matter what your reason tells you. This is an item of faith. And since it is not rationally based, faith is absolute. It is not like a scientific conclusion only true so far as the data indicate. It is true even though we don't have any data. 
Therefore, if you believe in God, it's absolute. You believe it no matter what. And everything else that happens is then colored and affected by this belief. When something good happens to you, you interpret it in terms of this faith. And you say, God has been good to me. If something bad happens, then you interpret it in terms of your faith in God. And you say, why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing this? Now, a person who doesn't have this faith finds that very stupid. The Bible says people who don't have faith find religion stupid. Because they'll say, oh, you're just arguing in a circle. You're just making an assumption. And then you're saying, oh, God is doing this or God is not doing that. Very true. But the other choice is nothing is doing this and nothing is doing that. And to a believer, that's kind of ridiculous. Now, does someone want to react to that? Definition. Uh, what is the best answer for the person who will say, thank you, prove to me that there is a God? <coughs> I think you probably just talking that. Yes, well, I think a good starter is we better talk about what we mean by proof. If you mean that I'm going to take you outside and show you God floating around or whatever, then we better stop right there. But if you mean by proof, proof believing, then we have a choice. We've got to believe one or the other. You know, the classic example of that was when the Russians first went into space. The Russians came back and said, we didn't see any God, we didn't see the angels. And the American astronauts who heard this in Paris during the air show said, well, there's a very simple reason you didn't see God up there, and that is you forgot to take him along. <laughs> and that's very true, you see. What you see in space or anywhere else depends on what kind of leap you've made. It's rather interesting, by the way, that uh, we started the first session talking about Clarence Darrow because he's very much in the news again. Uh, the present issue on the newsstand or on the news libraries of the humanist, which is a very interesting issue because it's in the paper a lot. It starts out with an article where 186 scientists signed a statement condemning astrology. And there are about 20 pages in the magazine of argument why astrology is nonsense. Now, these people are not necessarily doing this for religious reasons. In fact, 18 of them are Nobel Prize winners. And six of them I have a chance to see next week at the convention in Minnesota and ask them, why did they sign this? They're very upset that so many people buy horoscopes. Well, later on, there is also an article called Absurdities of the Bible. So you see, if you get too excited about that first article, it's very religious. It's not. It's just not scientific, they say, to have a belief in astrology. But on the, on the following page is a review of some statements by Clarence Darrow, and he was a very outspoken atheist. And at one point, and this I think is very germane to what we're talking about, he says, I am an, I am an agnostic, 
because no mind living can form any picture of any God and you can't believe in an object unless you can form a picture of it. Now that was Darrell's way of out, you see. You may believe in the force, but not in the object. If there is any God in the universe, I don't know it. Some people say they know it instinctively. See, he knows some people have faith. Well, the errors and foolish things that men have known instinctively are so many, we can't even talk about them. Some people have faith in stupid things, he says. So why should I believe their faith in God? As a rule, the less a person knows, the surer he is, and he gets it by instinct, and it can't be disputed. For I don't know what is going on in another man's mind. I have no such instinct. He just can't make himself believe. And I'll never forget the one conversation with one of the men in Sweden, was it? Uh, Rittberg, yes, Dr. Rittberg. And we were talking for quite a while, and he said at one point, he was an atheist. He started out and said, I'm an atheist, and if you don't want to continue talking to me, you don't have to. I said, that's not the purpose, whether I want to talk about it. I want to hear what you have to say. And at one point he said, I wish I could believe in God. Now what does that mean? It means that you cannot believe in God by yourself, an atheist admits this. This one did. I said, why do you say that? He said, because, and this is all in here, under Rydberg, R-Y-D, B-E-R-G. He said, when you go home tonight, he said, you can pray, you can unload all your troubles, and go to sleep peacefully, because you believe there is a God who will take care of this. I can't do that, he said. I don't believe there is one, and I go home and I've got all my troubles with me, all night long. And he said, if I'd go home tonight and find that my wife and children were murdered, I'd go crazy. And he said, if I could believe in God, maybe I wouldn't. I don't think I had a single experience in this whole book that convinced me more that you cannot believe in something by yourself. It is a gift of God. And I think another answer to your question is, if a person says, prove to me that God exists, I would answer him eventually and say, I will go home and will pray that God will give you the faith that he exists. The, the Bible says, and this is in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul, of course, who wrote Corinthians, was quite a rational person, too. He had the best education of his time. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In another version, my work was to plant the seed in your hearts, Apollos' work was to water it, but it was God, not we, who made the garden grow in your hearts. We cannot create faith. And I think the more we argue, the further we get away from creating faith, the more we're getting in God's way. We can tell people, we can show how it is in a person to have faith, how it affects his life, but only God can create faith. 
why can't we as uh, Christians all look at the look at the Easter experiences? Well, this uh, in fact was my next point. Once a person has faith, then everything that happens is a proof that God exists. But if you don't have it, the Easter experience, nothing will point to God. Now we say the person doesn't want to believe. Well, I met a person who wanted to. And still the Easter story, and we talk about that later, miracles and so on. No, not miracles to him. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the universe his handiwork. But it's written for believers. I have a student in class now. I asked a question on the last test last week. Does astrology fit into your religion? Do you buy horoscopes in the drugstore and read them? And does this fit with your religious faith? And I got some very interesting answers on paper there. And one girl wrote, I don't have any religious faith. Now where do you go from there? <coughs> Paul said, I planted. The next guy came to this town in Corinth and watered it. But God gives the increase. Once more, on CBS radio, this question was in the news. A friend of mine sent me this in the mail last week and said you might be able to use this. He listened to this on CBS and asked for a transcript, which you can do, by the way, anytime you hear anything on radio, television, call or write and say I'd like that word for word. And there's a program on uh, CBS called Spectrum, where different people express different opinions, and one of the regular speakers on there is Phyllis Schlafly. She says, I'm Phyllis Schlafly. Now follow this uh, reasoning, or lack of it, or whatever this is, how she reaches this conclusion. She said, this month marked the 50th anniversary of the famous Scopes trial in Tennessee, that dramatic courtroom confrontation between the theory of evolution according to Darwin and divine creation according to the Bible. A half century ago, the Darwinian liberals such as John Scopes and the flamboyant atheists such as his lawyer Clarence Darrell, but Darrell himself said he was not an atheist, he was an agnostic, now there's a difference, were asking for the right to teach evolution. The wheel has now turned full circle. The atheists have censored out of our schools the concept that God created the world and its inhabitants. In 1973, the Tennessee legislature passed a new law requiring that God be given equal time with Darwin. This year, a federal court of appeals ruled that law unconstitutional. Similar laws in Arkansas and Mississippi have also been struck down by the courts. Now she gives her comment. The notion that life somehow began spontaneously without God and mysteriously evolved to include all sea, land, air, and human life does violence to causality and lacks scientific proof. The more we learn about outer space, the more certain we are that of all the known celestial bodies, only our Earth can support human life. The evidence is overwhelming that there must have been a divine engineer who arranged the unique combination of sunlight, air, water, a tilted Earth to provide four seasons, a rotating Earth to prevent extremes of heat and cold, and a moon to furnish the tides to keep our oceans fresh. 
A Robinson Crusoe who finds a gold watch on a deserted island does not conclude that by some chance combination of events it evolved from the iron ore, silica, and gold in the rocks. Likewise, the evidence of a divine architect who designed the laws of physics, chemistry, heredity, and life itself with man and his intellect infinitely superior to animal species is too plain to reject. To say that human beings who can compose symphonies and build space vehicles are children of apes rather than children of God is scientifically absurd. If the evolutionists had scientific proof of their theory, they would not be so afraid to give equal time to the biblical story of creation. I'm Phyllis Schlafly with Spectrum. Now, aside from what you could say about that comment, it is certainly a striking statement in our time. You haven't heard something like this, at least I haven't on radio and television, for quite a while. And she mentioned scientific proof, and when it comes right down to the end, she's telling what she feels. And she's saying what she feels is more important to her than all the data and things that people are trucking out, you see. She's comparing these two ways of arriving at truth. Yes. The word faith. Faith in itself is absolute. But faith in certain things is not necessarily absolute. Oh, you mean it may get stronger and weaker? That's right. Yes. Or it may disappear completely. That, yes. That's certainly true. That's certainly true. And there we suffer from the oversimplification. Your faith in something can weaken or get stronger. But it is my contention that as long there is, as there is any of it, it is still a proof that does not require data of any kind. And even the Bible speaks of the smoking reed. And even a little faith will get you there, it says. Because even a tiny faith is still more absolute than data. Does that speak to your... I'm in a little bit, but it's true. I, I know what you're saying. That uh, where does doubt come in? Yeah. Maybe we should have another Sunday on doubt. Because the person who says he doesn't doubt uh, is not being very honest at all. Yes. Sometimes you think about the Illuminati theory and what it says in the Bible about Adam and Eve. Sometimes I think that maybe the, the two theories are not incompatible. Because the Bible doesn't say how God went about putting Adam on the earth. And that, it just may that, be that through a process of evolution, right. uh, we arrived at Adam. Yes, I don't want to create the impression that uh, it is a choice of those two, because I know many Christians who believe that God created the world through an evolutionary process. And I think Phyllis Lively is going a little too far in this respect where she makes you feel that it's got to be one way or the other. And maybe Tennessee law uh, looked at that too and said it's not an either or thing. You're very right. And uh, it is unfortunate, I think, that for many years, people's Christian faith was judged by whether they believe in an evolutionary process. There are all kinds of evolutionary processes. And to lump it all together into the apes is of course, it's oversimplification too. It's not even that anymore at all. Even in animal life, then there's an evolution of a 
solar system and of the universe and so on. You're correct. But the point she makes, I think, even though she defines those, the terms uh, loosely, is a valid one. I was you know, kind of surprised you haven't proposed this catechism. Uh, it's always been one of the most uh, amazing things to me, the way that reads. Uh, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord and come to him as yes. the Holy Ghost is going by the gospel, right. so on and so forth. So that even in, in his time, I mean, he wasn't really what you'd call a reasoning that he was going again based on faith. So that uh, uh, I'm here because, I, I believe in God because I'm here. Uh, but just believing in God, I mean, does it accomplish anything? What are you using it for? I, I know what you're saying. Yes, I had thought of the third article there in that connection, but one reason I didn't want to get too far into it is because the word reason there is not quite the same thing as a scientific reason because it had not yet been developed. But he was certainly saying that uh, we should not try to use our own senses to come to a knowledge of God, that we have to be called by the Holy Spirit, and that he is the one who has to nurture the faith as well. I brought a little uh, machine. I'm uh, inspired by Pastor Bowlby's little demonstrations in front of church. So I brought one I want to end with, but there, we have a few more comments. Uh, I just want to know if you feel like God, God himself as well. Um, the idea that God changes, uh, it's kind of an Eastern Oriental idea and that we can eventually become the way God is now and by that time we will be even farther. Um, I think the Mormons also have this tenet in their faith. I don't find it in the Bible. It is difficult for me to see how God, who is described as perfect, can evolve further. But certainly it's there that we will become closer to God ourselves. And that at one point man was. And we should try to get back there. That's, that's about all I can say. I, I, can't, I can't envision God evolving further. Otherwise I would, I would have to say that he is not totally God now. There's something about him in the book. Did you see that in the end? No, I haven't. Uh, many of the scientists told me they believe in the philosophy of Chardin. And an interesting thing is I've been asked to do an all-day symposium on this very topic that we're talking about for the teachers of Nassau County next spring, an all-day public school workshop. And they have invited uh, a rabbi and uh, a Catholic sister, I think, to react to my presentation. And when I did this once before at a convention, a Catholic sister who was there immediately went to Chardin, who, as you will read this a little, toward the end of the book, was a great philosopher in the Catholic Church. He was a Jesuit and uh, was excommunicated for his views. And that, of course, was one reason because, as one Catholic 
theologian told me there is no room in Chopin's theory for original sin. And since that was a teaching, he had to go. But many consider it unfortunate because he was a great scientist too. I have a little theory about God and creation that I don't know if you'll accept. Remember, you don't have to believe theories, you just have to think about it. And I put it across with a little machine here that a student built for me 25 years ago. He's now an engineer. Uh, I show it here because the cord isn't quite long enough. I have to plug in. There's an extension behind your chair there. It consists, and I should tell you, the reason I'm using the machine is to help put across what I think creation was like. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first thing he did, it says, let there be light. Well, many people are puzzled. What the world did he mean? Let there be light. And then later he made the sun and moon and stars. And then people say, well, it's a myth. And it just meant kind of God was responsible for this whole thing. I find it, in teaching science, very helpful to say, and in fact, this is no longer a theory, what I'm going to say now. It's pretty well established scientifically that everything in the world is a form of energy. We found out in making an atom bomb that you can take matter and turn it into energy. Therefore, matter must simply be another form of energy. Einstein said this, of course, in 1905 already. Energy can take many forms. Light, heat, sound, atomic, everything. And if we think of creation as God putting energy into the universe, and he certainly is the source of everything, so he's the source of that too. And let's say God said, let there be energy, because light is a wavelength of energy. Then everything else can come from there. And maybe eventually he'll take it all back. Everything disappears back into a form of energy. Or if he wants to take our bodies, as he says he will, which are a form of energy now, and change them into another form of energy, which is more perfect, why shouldn't he be able to do that? So this is my energy machine. Electric energy is coming in here. And this is just a bunch of iron rods here, coil of wire. And I hope there's a big enough fuse in the house. I lit this once at a camp upstate. The only Boy Scout sitting around and the banging and the lights went on his day. It's pretty good. Let's do that again. And another time, the great brown out there, remember? I was using this for a teacher's conference. I flipped it, and the lights not even on the room, but all over New York City. It was perfectly timed. And they said, hey, we got to have him back. No. Now, this is an aluminum ring. It's not iron, which, see, I let the kids worry about this for a whole week. What in the world made that thing jump up there? Or, now that's mechanical energy we got out of electricity. If you want heat energy, hold this ring down once while it's going. And you'll burn your hands. It's warm now. It'll get red hot, and if you don't let go, it'll melt. So we got heat energy there. And you want to flip the switch back there? It's a little more impressive if the light's off. This is a good review of the entire physics course, in fact. Here is a flashlight bulb with a few wires. 
Right, you go down the brighter it gets. So the stronger your faith, the brighter your light shines in this world. That's about it, unless somebody has any more questions. That's a good introduction for next Sunday. We're going to talk about miracles. <laughs> Good.